VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Aaron Rutkoff, the editor of Bloomberg Green. This week, we published a profile of Sultan al-Jaber, president of COP28, the year's biggest climate summit set to happen in the United Arab Emirates at the end of November. Akshat spent months working on this article. I think it's a really important story. So I wanted to talk to him about how he got the story on this episode. These summits have been growing bigger and gaining in importance just as climate impacts are striking with greater ferocity and global emissions continue to hit new records. That's why Al-Jaber's appointment has attracted so much attention and criticism. He isn't just leading a pivotal UN climate forum, but among his many, many jobs, he's also the head of ADNOC. That's the state-owned oil company that's the source of wealth in the United Arab Emirates. But, you know, it's complicated. The UAE is the first country in the Middle East to set a net zero goal, and it's the only country to build any significant amount of renewable energy capacity in the region. And Al-Jaber's behind all that. He isn't just an oil boss cut from the classic mold. He spent much of his career as a renewables executive with a grand plan to build a zero-carbon city in the desert. Those contradictions are worth exploring, especially because Al-Jaber is now the one who gets to decide the limits of how much progress will be made at this year's big climate summit. So Akshat, this article is partly a profile of who this guy is. And there's also this philosophical question that we're asking of, where does oil belong in the climate negotiations? So let's start there with trying to understand why there's a big UN climate summit happening inside of a very big oil monarchy. Well, so a feature of these annual COP summits, which, as the number says, have been happening for about 28 years, is that they are hosted in a different country on a different continent every year. And the countries that want to host the summit have to run a campaign to gather support from other countries typically from the same continent, um, and win the bid. So the country that runs an effective campaign wins, which is how the UAE, one of the largest oil producers in the world, won the bid. It's also worth noting that COP28 is only the second time in nearly three decades that a COP meeting is happening in an economy that is highly dependent on income from oil and gas. COP18 in Qatar in 2012 was the last one. Of course, between then and now, we've had the Paris Agreement and all the major economies of the world are aligned with a net zero goal. So COP events have become this really important place uh, to figure out how the world as a whole uh, will meet climate goals. And for the UAE to get there, they also had to set a net zero goal by 2050 to show that they are serious. Sultan Al-Jaber has been announced as the new president of COP. And it's Fair to say there was a pretty big freakout, right? He becomes a kind of litmus test for uh, how seriously you take a country like UAE and its trajectory towards net zero. So who lines up on the uh, anti-Al-Jaber camp? A huge number of people. Um, we got a letter that was signed by more than 400 green groups around the world that said that he threatens the legitimacy and efficacy of the summit. We even got US lawmakers, more than two dozen of them, putting diplomatic pressure to force him out of this role. But at the same time, the very people who have to work with him 
climate diplomats from the European Union, from the US, even from climate vulnerable countries like the Maldives, came to his support saying that he is a person with a different background running a COP event and maybe that is a good thing. The critics fear, and, and you talk to a number of people who were worried about his appointment, is that you're essentially bringing the oil business inside of a process that's meant to limit how much burning of fossil fuels we'll be doing in the future. So in our reporting, did you find anything to back up those anxieties of people who are worried about the oil business coming too close to what's supposed to be, a, you know, a UN process? We did. For the story, we talked to more than four dozen people. And one of the things that we found out from multiple people is that Adnock, the oil company, is actually directly paying some consultants and even some staff uh, working on COP28 related issues in the UAE. One of the people we spoke to, who is the co-president of the Club of Rome, said that she has heard about the reach of Adnox money going to some very senior people. And that has caused her to tell her colleagues that if this goes too far, maybe we shouldn't go to COP at all. Representatives for Al Jabbar said in a statement that the budget for COP28 comes from the UAE government and, quote, strict rules of governance, end quote, ensure separation from the state oil company. Okay, so that's the backdrop. And now I want to go to the man himself, right? Because for for us talking about this story over the past couple of months, I think one of the things that stood out is that here you have somebody in an immensely public role running COP28. He's also obviously running what is the defining industry of the United Arab Emirates. But it's not like you could look up and read a profile of him the way that you would find, say, like a profile of the CEO of Exxon or BP, right? Uh, Talk to me about what we had to learn, what we didn't know before we set out to sort of figure out where Sultan Al-Jabbar came from. So one thing I quickly learned when I started on the story was that Al-Jabbar plays a very strong part in shaping local media in the UAE. And that level of control that you can have in a country like the UAE means that some very basic biographical details uh, of Al-Jabbar weren't known. So, for example, we know that he was born in 1973, but we didn't know until now that he came from Um Al Khoin, which is one of the smallest of the Emirates in the UAE. And that matters because the ruling elite, uh, the country has had only presidents from the Al Nahyan family from Abu Dhabi, is quite removed from Um Al Khoin. A spokesperson for Al Jabbar said, and I quote, the suggestion of editorial interference is not supported by any evidence. Here, we're already seeing uh, another way that his background sets him apart, right? So we're talking about him as uh, someone who has a renewables background, working fossil fuel. But if you peer into his biography, you see somebody who's coming from far outside of power and is rising up on a almost, you know, meritocracy basis inside of a pretty closed society where power is kept apart from a lot of people. So can, can you talk to me about how he came up through the system in the UAE? So when he was growing up, there were, you know, less than a million people in the UAE. And if you're a bright student, you get noticed. And he won scholarships from Adnoc. The oil company was growing quite rapidly and needed engineers to do the work. And so he went and studied engineering and then business administration in California and came back and worked on oil and gas projects. 
that is a well-trodden path for many Emirati engineers. He ends up getting a PhD because everyone calls him Dr. Sultan, is that right? That's right. He also went on to study for a PhD in economics at Coventry University uh, a little bit later in his life. And so when you meet him, where are you meeting him when you finally get your long-sought interview and um, how does it go? It was the end of February and uh, we met in Abu Dhabi in the COP28 office. You know, it was a pleasant meeting. Uh, he's a very tall guy, soft-spoken um, also very happy to be interrupted as we spoke through his career and many of the questions that Green Groups have raised about his presidency at COP. So in this conversation, one thing that he brings up is that uh, he's often felt misunderstood, right? The the reaction of critics after his appointment to the COP presidency isn't the first time he feels like people are judging him because of where he comes from. That's right. Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who is now the president of the UAE, but at the time had just become the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, uh, took an interest in Al-Jabbar's career. But also it was a time when there were real fears of oil production peaking which is that the world might run out of oil altogether. It might seem quaint today when we are now talking about when will oil consumption peak, uh, but those fears were quite real in the early 2000s. And Sheikh Mohammed wanted to find out whether the UAE can invest in clean energy and maybe become an exporter of energy without the emissions. And so he asked Al-Jabbar to go on a world tour. He told me that he went to 15 countries in three months and uh, came back with an idea that, you know, renewable energy is actually much more mature than people think it is, but that there are many different parts of the industry that do not work together. And thus, if he can make that happen, say in the form of a sustainable zero-carbon city, uh, that would train Emiratis on these technologies and push the industry forward. So I want to get back to the shake in a second, but on this tour, that's when he first feels uh, people's misunderstanding for his motivations. That's right. He said that when he went on a tour, he got opposite reactions. Some were excited and some were puzzled. Why is this guy who's coming from an oil producing nation uh, talking about clean energy? And that misunderstanding is something he is used to for decades now. All right. So he returns from his tour. He has a dream of building a zero carbon city in the desert and he gets the sheikh to put in a significant amount of money. You went to see this city. It's been under construction for, what, 15 years now. What does it look like? What does a zero carbon city in the desert look like? And is it actually zero carbon? So 2008 is when construction roughly began. And he was given almost $15 billion of support to create the city. The initial deadline to complete it was 2016. That has come and gone. I went there in February and there are still large parts that are quite empty. Uh, the new deadline to finish it is 2030. The city itself, the core of it is beautiful. It's an experiment in sustainable architecture. There are shaded streets and there's a big tower that brings in cool air onto these streets. There's a 10 megawatt solar field at the corner of the city uh, that was supposed to provide all the power uh, that the city needed. But the UAE's electricity mostly comes from natural gas. And when uh, the sun goes down and when there's need for more electricity, uh, some of it is drawn from uh, this natural gas powered grid. All right. So that's Mazdar. That's the renewables company that Sultan Al-Jaber runs. This covers about a decade and gets us right up to 2015 in the uh, months right before the Paris Agreement is going to be signed. And this is actually where your profile begins. We talk about Sheikh Mohammed and the Sheikh's 
imagination of what a future post-Paris for his oil-dependent economy will be like. What was the sheikh's vision for what the day that oil ends would be like in his kingdom? So this is a quote that is often cited if you are in the UAE. And it's a quote from Sheikh Mohammed's speech given at this government summit in Dubai in early 2015, months before the Paris Agreement is signed. And it says, After we have loaded this last barrel of oil, are we going to feel sad? If our investment today is right, I think we will celebrate that moment. So the sheikh is looking for someone to make his dream of a happy end to oil come true. And who does he turn to? To Al Jabbar. Within a year of giving the speech, uh, Al Jabbar is handed the oil company Adnoc, which is the crown jewel of the UAE. And one of his mandates is to decarbonize Adnoc's oil and gas production. And that's no small feat. Let's really put a pin in this for people listening. How much wealth left untapped are we talking about when you're looking at the UAE's oil reserves right now? UAE is sitting on something like 100 billion barrels of oil, which is today worth more than $8 trillion. And taking this stuff out of the ground makes the UAE as a country and and Adnoc as a company a colossal emitter. Compare them to some stuff that people would be familiar with. One way to think about how big Adnox emissions are is to uh, compare it to either a country or to the combination of other oil companies. So Adnox emissions from all the oil and gas that is produced and then burned is approximately the same as Iran, which is among the top 10 emitters in the world. Or another way to think about it is Adnox emissions are approximately the same as combining BP and Exxon. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. One of the challenges that you had to tackle in this story is trying to assess whether or not um, Al Jaber in his role as the CEO of Adnoc has been able to begin decarbonization in any measurable way. It's a hard challenge because there is very little data available. Adnoc does not 
disclose emissions the way many of its peers, including Saudi Aramco, ExxonMobil, or BP, reveal those emissions. Though al Jaber did say he's very proud that ADNOC is now being powered by nuclear power and solar power that are both generated in the UAE, but it's not really possible to say how much of an impact that's had on emissions because we don't have those numbers. And so this gets us back to the where we were in the beginning about uh, the people who are frustrated by him or who he feels misunderstood by. Uh, the UN process is one where countries disclose and come up with plans to deal with their emissions. Al Jaber's running a company that doesn't disclose its emissions. Do they have a plan? Yes. So when we asked these questions about not disclosing emissions, uh, Representative so Al Jaber told us that ADNOC is currently working on uh, building its books and, and will reveal at least some of its emissions in the near future. ADNOC as the company has set a net zero by 2050 goal to match with the country goal. There is also a short-term goal of being able to uh, spend money on clean energy, uh, something like $15 billion uh, by 2030. Uh, but that pales in comparison to the money that ADNOC is planning to spend on oil and gas production, something like $150 billion by 2027. And if you put the renewable energy that Al Jaber creates in his role as the head of Mazdar, and you weigh that against the emissions that ADNOC makes, you know, where, where do the scales net out? So Mazdar claims that based on the renewable energy projects it has built, things like solar panels in Uzbekistan, wind farms in the U.S., uh, or waste-to-energy plant in the UAE, they avoid, on an annual basis, 7.5 million tons. But if you take just two subsidiaries of ADNOC, the ADNOC Gas Company and ADNOC Distribution, those alone produce something like 45 million tons of emissions annually, according to Bloomberg estimates. So there's a massive gap between what Mazdar does and what ADNOC does. So of all the Emiratis, why choose Al Jaber? One reason is because he is the fixer. He gets difficult jobs done. One of the things we learned from our reporting is that in 2015, Al Jaber was managing the UAE's aid to Egypt. Uh, he flew often to Cairo and spoke to President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who had just overthrown the democratically elected Mohamed Morsi. One of the academics told us that Al-Jabr was like the viceroy of Sheikh Mohammed in Egypt for many years. Then, when he was made the chief of ADNOC, uh, he laid off thousands of people. And that might seem like something that a CEO does, but in the UAE, where ADNOC is uh, seen as the place where you get a job for life, that was a difficult decision to make, and there was a lot of backlash. And so he is seen as this guy who gets difficult things done, and COP28 is certainly going to be a difficult task. So that's how Al Jaber gets to this moment. Now let's look ahead at his future running COP28. One thing that I think attracted us both to examining him in all of his contradictions is that he and the people who are kind of the most against him right now share a point of view about uh, how useful the COP process has become, you know, eight years after the signing of the Paris Agreement. What's his view and sort of what's the general sense of people who are a little frustrated with the COP process at this point? That's right. COP process is bureaucratic and given that emissions are hitting new records, it's not producing the kind of progress that is needed. 
So there's a whole contingent of people who are calling on reforming the COP process. The COP summits have been getting bigger and bigger in size. Uh, the UAE is expecting something like 70,000 people to come in that two-week period. One of the suggestions is to make it smaller, to make it focused, to make it people who will come and decide how to move things forward. Another one is around fossil fuel phase-out. It continues to be shocking and surprising that the first time fossil fuels as a term was mentioned in a COP summit agreement was in 2021, uh, when COP happened here in Glasgow. And ever since that uh, wall was broken, uh, there is more demand to make it clear that the science says to be able to tackle climate change, we have to phase out fossil fuels altogether. And there was an attempt to try and get that language into the agreement at COP27 in Egypt, but that failed. And this time around, activists are very focused, uh, and not just activists, but also countries like the European Union, India, are very keen to make sure that that phrase comes through in the COP agreement. All right, so now let's be very specific. What does success at COP look like for Sultan al-Jabbar? There are as many desires of what COP should produce as there are people attending it. But there is a consensus forming around the types of things that will really move the ball. Uh, we spoke to Jennifer Morgan, who is Germany's climate envoy, and she said three things will make a real difference. Stronger commitment to curb emissions, so something like a fossil fuel phase-out language. Really putting money to work from rich countries to developing countries who are both suffering the impacts of climate change more and who need help to be able to build the green technologies that will allow them to leapfrog from fossil fuels to a clean energy future. And finally, because these impacts are here and now, they want a fund for loss and damage caused by climate change, something that was agreed on at COP27, but there's no real money attached to it. Um, and Morgan basically said that COP presidencies are judged by the outcomes. So in talking to Al Jaber and his advisors, is there anything that sort of characterizes his approach as a, as a businessman that's kind of different than what's come before COP? So one thing that became apparent is he is going to try and speak to his peers, the CEOs of other oil companies, who have in previous COPs felt like uh, they weren't welcome. Um, he spoke at an energy conference in Houston, the heartland of U.S. energy, and he said that he hopes oil and gas companies will go faster and do more to cut emissions and that they should feel welcome to COP28. To COP Another thing that his advisors said they are likely to do is to create an agenda that goes beyond what is in the formal COP process. Uh, one example they gave is of the Energy Transition Accelerator. This would be a place where governments will make commitments to buy green technologies like green cement, green steel, or sustainable aviation fuels to try and push that industry forward, even though those products are expensive today because you have to work on reducing the emissions attached to them. Um, and the more you deploy them, as we've learned with wind and solar, uh, the cheaper they are likely to get. But at every COP event, we do get many, many such initiatives coming through. What the COP team wants is that this time around, there will be 
ways to keep a track of these commitments and to uh, make sure that progress actually happens. How exactly that will be done is not quite clear yet. I mean, I'm not going to ask a climate reporter on a climate podcast to talk about the stakes, uh, you know, what's at stake at COP for the, the world. But I do want you, after thinking a lot about Sultan al-Jaber and his patron, Sheikh Mohammed, to tell us about what the stakes are for the UAE in particular. They're bringing the whole climate world into the oil monarchy for the biggest climate event of the year. What does a good outcome look like for the UAE and what does a disappointing outcome look like? Already the UAE feels like it is a regional leader, having set a net zero by 2050 goal, having all these renewable energy projects. But from a global standard, it's very far behind. It has one of the highest per capita emissions. Even though it has renewables projects, we found out that it actually generates less solar power than Belgium, which is far less sunny. And its own climate plan, according to Climate Action Tracker, is highly insufficient. So one thing that would help the UAE succeed, according to many of the diplomats we spoke to, is if it can burnish its own climate credentials. And we learned that the UAE's Environment Ministry is working on submitting new commitments to the UN and making its plan a bit stronger. But as Romina Purmaktari, the Swedish climate minister, told us, if Al-Jabbar isn't able to manage those delicate negotiations, then it is the UAE who are the ones who are going to lose internationally, reputation-wise, prestige-wise. Thanks for listening to Zero. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can email us at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd, and the senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Jilda DeCarly, Stacey Wong, and Kira Beendrum for their help on this episode. We've put a link to the article, The Oil Shakes Climate Fixer, in the show notes. 